Well, good morning. So we're in the, we're midway through a series. Uh, next week is the last week of the series. We're calling it The Power of a Dream. It's an Old Testament story that, uh, as I mentioned last week, begins with a dream and it ends with a dream fulfilled. Oh, sorry. Happy Father's Day. Not to mention that. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, so it's the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. It's a centuries old story, 5,000 years old, and it still applies today. And so just kind of as a quick recap of where we've been, Joseph was sold by his brothers. Uh, there's a lot of dysfunction there that we won't get into this morning. And then he is sold in Egypt to Potiphar, who's a captain of Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt. While he's a slave to Potiphar for several years, he's falsely accused of rape by Potiphar. Potiphar's wife, and he's sent to prison. Joseph will spend uh, about a decade in prison. And while he's in prison, many years go by, and he meets the king's cupbearer and baker. Now, the cupbearer and baker are both in prison as well. They're in prison for unknown offenses. That is not part of the story. But while in prison, both of them have a dream, a different dream. And Joseph, who is familiar with dreams, right, he interprets these dreams for them. And uh, the cupbearer's dream is a very encouraging dream. And Joseph tells him that he will return to the king's side while the baker's dream is not so encouraging and it kind of has not a not so happy ending. And the baker, uh, Joseph tells him, is going to be killed for his offense against the king. So Joseph, though, asks the cupbearer, who will soon be back by the king's side, he says, hey, when you're there with the king, put in a good word for me and remember me. But the cupbearer forgets. And so Joseph will now spend more time in prison, more time in prison until Pharaoh, the king, has a dream. And while the king is trying to interpret what this dream means, the cupbearer remembers his time in prison, remembers Joseph who was in prison, and he tells the king, I know someone who can interpret your dream. Now, Joseph is brought out of prison. He's brought into the presence of the pharaoh, and the pharaoh tells Joseph the dream, and Joseph is able to interpret this through God. The king's dream, Joseph tells the king, is a prediction of Egypt's future, that Egypt is going to have seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And so Joseph warns the pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt, that the economy is going to boom. You're going to have seven years of great opportunity, but then there's going to be an economic crash that's going to last just as long. And so he says, this dream is God's warning that you need to prepare all of Egypt for what's to come during the seven years of plenty. And so Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph, so impressed with what Joseph is able to do for him, that he immediately on the spot makes Joseph the number two authority of Egypt. And so Joseph goes from prison to the number two authority in all of Egypt in a day in a moment in time. And now under Joseph's leadership, Egypt begins to prepare for the famine that's going to take place in seven years. And so over the next seven years, they begin, uh, uh, Joseph sets up a plan where they're storing grain, storing supplies, storing resources, so that when there are seven years of famine, Egypt will be able to survive this. And, and Joseph is responsible for all of this. 
Now, we're going to pick up the story after the seven years of plenty, and we're going to pick it up two years into the famine. And this is a worldwide crisis, or at least the known world at this time, is in the midst of a famine. And Joseph's brothers, who are 200 miles away from Egypt, are experiencing the same famine that Egypt is experiencing. Now, Joseph is 39 years old when his brothers will arrive in Egypt. It's been 22 years, more than two decades, since they sold him as a slave. Half of Joseph's lifetime as a slave and a prisoner. And unknowingly, Joseph's brothers have come to Joseph now for help. And the dream is slowly becoming reality. Now, of course, the brothers don't recognize Joseph. It's been 22 years, and they believe that he is either a slave or he's dead. But the brothers are going to arrive in Egypt for food. And because of this famine, Egypt, like I said, is the only place with a food surplus. And so they're brought before Joseph. It says that they bow down before him, and they request food, to purchase food. They unknowingly bow before Joseph, their brother. And now we're going to pick up the story. It's from Genesis chapter 45. It's going to be up on the screen, and it says this. Joseph could stand it no longer. Now, what Joseph did, let me pause here for a second. I want to mention this. What Joseph did in this situation is he recognized his brothers right away. They don't recognize him. He's dressed as an Egyptian. He has an Egyptian name now, and it's been 22 years, so they have no idea that this is Joseph. But Joseph recognizes his brothers immediately. And Joseph is careful when he meets them. He begins to ask them questions about their family. He's kind of testing who they are, if they're the same men that they were 22 years ago. He finds out some information about them. He's almost, in a way, interviewing them. And then he says this, or then that Joseph could stand it no longer. Now, there were many people in the room, and he said to all of his attendants, he said this, it's up on the screen, out, all of you. And so he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians could hear him, and the word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. All that has happened to Joseph, after all that he's experienced, all that has happened, standing in front of him are the men responsible. And Joseph has all the power. And the dream is coming true. His brothers have to bow before him. He's second in command, and he could surely send them to prison or even death. And the story tells us that Joseph weeps. Why is he weeping? Is it because he's seeing the dream become reality? Is he beginning to see all that God has been doing and has done in his life is for this moment? Is he weeping about all that could have been if his brothers had not done what they had done? 
the broken relationship that they experience? Or is it all of these things and even more? But it says Joseph weeps. It's been a hard time, I'm sure, for him. Decades of wondering where his brothers were, how his brothers felt, whether or not his father's alive, which is one of the questions he asks his brothers. And then verse 3 up on the screen, I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. Can you imagine? A secret they've held for 22 years. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer. And he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. Joseph doesn't excuse them. He doesn't rewrite history. His brothers sold him, and he remembers what they did. Don't mistake Joseph for someone who just easily forgets what's happened in the past. He doesn't make it less comfortable or uncomfortable. He doesn't minimize what's happened. He is honest, and he addresses the offense. He says, you're the guys that sold me into slavery. I'm your brother, and you sold me. Verse 5 up on the screen, but don't be upset, and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. Is this fascinating? It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, <clears throat> the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all of Egypt. Joseph is able to see how God used his circumstances for good. He saw how his brother's evil intentions were used by God. Now, God sometimes chooses to intervene directly. There are times where we, uh, where we can see God is intervening directly in our lives. But in most cases, God works through the ordering of circumstances, in other words, through the natural progress of events, through, uh, through the things that happen in life, life is patterned to shape history according to God's plan and God's will. And so Joseph understands that, and he says, God sent me here for a reason. See, you sent me as a slave, but God used that to make me an advisor to the king. And so as I've been reading this, in preparing for this message, I have been asking myself this question, and I challenge you to ask it of yourselves. What would you do? You have all the power at your disposal 
and someone has attempted to wreck you, to ruin you, to kill you, and you are right and they are in the wrong, what would I do? Joseph's response is fascinating, overwhelming, and challenging. It's up on the screen. It's verse 15 of chapter 45. Then Joseph kissed each of his brothers and wept over them. And after that, they began talking freely with him. Joseph chooses to forgive them. It's not what we expect, right? Don't raise your hand, don't answer, but is that what you, have done, what you would have done? See, it's not the kind of story that Hollywood typically makes into a movie. See, we prefer vengeance and retribution and payback. I mean, the best movies have the hero victorious and the bad guy either has at least an awful death or put in prison forever and ever, right? Those are the stories that we like to hear. But Joseph's story is different. Joseph has all these things happen to him. And standing in front are the men responsible. And he says, I know why you did this. But there was a bigger plan in place. And God used your evil deeds for good. And because of that perspective, Joseph's able to forgive these brothers. Now, I want to pause there just for a moment, and I want to talk about dreams. As I've been thinking about this series, as we've been working through this series, there are a few different categories of dreams that we've talked about. Pastor Jeff mentioned it uh, in one of the previous messages. I've mentioned it as well. There's some little dreams, right? I'm calling them little dreams for right now, or personal dreams, you could call them. I mean, these are all the things of life. Like, we have dreams about graduations, and we have dreams about our first job. We have dreams about our career, and dreams about marriage and family. I'm at that point in my life where, where I was meeting with our financial planner and he was asking me to dream about retirement. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, time out. I am not nearly old enough for that. Which he said, no, you're way too late. <laughs> and so we have dreams, right? Dreams about our marriage and our family and our kids and our health. We have dreams. All of those dreams are all important but I'm categorizing them as little dreams or personal dreams, right? And so everyone has those dreams. We all have dreams about our life. We all want the best for the ones that we love. And so we have dreams, personal dreams, little dreams. Also, though, in life, we experience another type of dream. We call those nightmares. There's nightmares of life. Sometimes it's things that just happen. It's no one's fault. It could be our health. It could be the economy. It could be an accident. It could be a natural disaster like we see in the news. If you watch the news, you can see these types of tragedies. Stories of nightmares. And so sometimes these things just happen. Other times, these nightmares, to be honest, are because we've made poor decisions. 
poor judgment, mistakes, those things we wish we had just done differently. And we experience a nightmare. And then sometimes there are nightmares that are caused to us. Evil actions done against us. Being sold as a slave and a decade in prison. And so for all of us, we not only have these personal dreams or these little dreams, we all of us have experienced nightmares of varying degrees. Some of them are life-altering. Some of them are just for a season. Others are just less than that. But we all have these dreams and these nightmares. Then alongside of that, alongside dreams and nightmares, there's also bigger dreams or God dreams. A dream of God is this vision that God has for your life. It's bigger than you ever imagined before. And the beauty of this is when our personal little dreams somehow can intersect with our dream of God's dream, it becomes an outstanding dream. So what starts out about dreaming about a happy marriage, when God intersects that dream, it becomes a vision for the best marriage possible. It becomes a relationship guided by God's principles and God's love. Or everyone dreams about happiness for their kids, but when God gets involved, it becomes a vision for our kids becoming and finding joy in a relationship with God and discovering that God alone brings that kind of joy and that God's principles and God's love guides their life through their future. And so these little dreams, these personal dreams can intersect with God's dream. And then there's other types of dreams that God can have for us. Like, for instance, for us here as a community, right now that dream has turned into a vision and it's becoming a reality in our campus in Mount Laurel. And we're discovering all that God has for us and for this community of faith. Discovering all that God wants for us. But not only do we have personal dreams and not only do we experience nightmares and not only do sometimes our God's dreams intersect with our personal dreams, there's also a fourth category. And this is the larger dream that God has for each of us. It's bigger than and it supersedes all other dreams. As a matter of fact, this dream of God has been around before any of us. It's a dream that has been for all of humanity. It's the dream that God placed in the Garden of Eden. It's the dream that God has for every human being from the beginning. And all other dreams that God gives an individual, you or me, or even a community of the church, all other dreams are about connecting and encouraging this overall dream that God has for humanity. And this dream is the best dream of all. God's big dream for you and for me and for all of us, for all every church that is a church of Jesus, is to love God and love people. It seems too simple. Let me explain. See, loving God is demonstrating through the sacrifice of Jesus, that are dem is demonstrating through the sacrifice of Jesus for each of us so that we can be, relation be in relationship with the creator God who made you and me and we can love God. And that we can love people. And then that's demonstrated through the example that Jesus showed us while he lived among us. And so when asked by someone who was religious, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said this, he said it's to love God 
with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else, everything else is connected to that. To love God and love people. So all of our God dreams can be summed up in these two God-sized dreams. This is God's dream, to love God and love people. Now, let me make it less simple than that. This is why the story of Joseph is so important. This is why this part of Joseph's story is so important. Because God's dream for you and me is to love God and love people. And many of us live with anger and unforgiveness. Again, don't raise your hand, but ask yourself honestly. How many of you have been angry with someone? How many of you are angry with someone right now? It's a problem we need to confront because holding on to that damages our heart and we live with bitterness and unforgiveness. When an injustice happens, our default reaction is that we want justice, and we should. We want what is right. If we're honest, we'll admit that we usually want the person who hurt us to pay for what they did to us. And a lot of times people feel as if we forgive the person who hurts us, then they will continue to take advantage of us, and they won't take responsibility for what they did wrong. That we're in a sense, if we forgive someone, we're giving them a free pass. But forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. See, forgiveness is this. Forgiveness is something that takes place between the one who has been hurt and God. It's between us and God. Did you catch that? Pause for just a moment and think about that. When someone hurts me, when someone has hurt you, we can go to God and work out the forgiveness part. And so I forgive not to set the other person free. I forgive because God wants to set me free. Reconciliation is different than that. Reconciliation is when a damaged relationship can be healed. Reconciliation is not a requirement and does not have to be a part of someone who you've forgiven. It can be and should be a desired outcome, but it's not always possible. Forgiveness and reconciliation are different. When people go through the reconciliation process right, the relationship has the potential to be restored, but that's not always possible. Sometimes there's forgiveness and there's full reconciliation and that is a beautiful thing. Sometimes there's forgiveness and there's just partial rec uh, reconciliation and trust is just tenuous and it always will be. And other times there's forgiveness and no reconciliation. So Father's Day for me when I was a teenager, it was the least enjoyable experience growing up. See, on Father's Day, all my friends were busy. And I had nothing to do. I spent from uh, about 10 years old through my 20s never seeing my dad. He left uh, and was gone. 
And so Father's Day was just another day. And everyone was busy. I struggled with figuring out how to express how that worked out and what that meant for me. I didn't think I had a lot of anger. I didn't think I had a lot of uh, animosity. I didn't think I needed to forgive. And uh, then I read this book uh, by Donald Miller. It's called To Own a Dragon. It was written in 2006. It's since been renamed, and I don't know why they renamed it, because the title is what caught me. Donald Miller grew up without a dad as well, and he described it in such a way that it just connected with me that it became the way I described it, and I've described it since 2006 this way. He said that when he would read books growing up about dragons, he understood what a dragon was. It was a fantasy creature, but he had never experienced one. And so he believed in dragons, but he'd never seen one in real life. And then he said this, for me, a father is nothing more than a character in a fairy tale. I know fathers are not like dragons and that fathers actually exist, but I don't remember feeling that a father existed for me. See, I know they're real people. I've seen them on television and I've watched them slide their arms around their women in the grocery stores. And I've seen them in the malls, and I've seen them in coffee shops, but these were characters in other people's stories. And I never stopped to question why one of those characters wasn't living in our house. I just thought it didn't. I don't say this out of self-pity, because in a way, I don't miss having a father any more than I miss having a dragon. I didn't know what a father was. But in the same way, I found myself wondering if I missed out on something important. And so I didn't talk about it. I didn't talk about it through my teen years or my 20s. I didn't ever address the pain that I was experiencing. I just thought it was really well hidden. And then in 1991, I graduated from college. I was married, and I was at a summer camp. And while I was at that summer camp, I met a gentleman. I thought he was ancient. He was probably in his 50s. (laughs) And he came alongside of me and became like a mentor in my life. And he lived in Ohio, but we would correspond, and I'd see him every summer at summer camp. And so one year I'm sitting on a bench, and he's talking, and there's other people around, and we're sharing different stories, and he, out of nowhere, says, Rick, have you ever forgiven your dad? And I totally blew it off. I changed the subject as quickly as possible and moved on to something else. And then he said this. He just leaned over and he said to me so simply, he said, until you can forgive your father, your heavenly father can't do everything he wants to do in your heart and life. And I said, thanks, appreciate it. And I blew it off. But I couldn't get it out of my head. And a few months later, I had the most spiritual experience I've ever had in my life. I was alone at my desk in my office at my church. And I was writing in a spiral notebook that since I've lost. And it came over me that I should write these four words I forgive my dad. It was simple. There were no angels. There was no chorus. There were no flashing lights. I didn't even cry. It was just something I wrote. 
I didn't know in 1991 writing those words would have an incredible impact on my life. It changed my perspective. It changed my understanding of grace. It changed my understanding of God. It changed me. It made me a better pastor. It made me a better husband. It made me a better dad. It just made me better. And it took away all those things that were wrapped around my heart. It removed these chains that I have unknowingly had around my heart and soul. Now, it's still a process for me. Forgiveness, yup, done. Reconciliation, and let me tell you, I'm 53 years old, and that's still difficult. I see my dad on occasion, about every decade. He wanders in. He lives around the corner. He's been to our church. He's visited me. Do I trust him? Not even close. Behaviors haven't changed. But I've forgiven him. See, forgiveness is never saying what happened was okay. Joseph said, you sold me. You, were my, you are my brothers and you sold me. What they did, what they've done to you has never been Okay. Forgiveness does not mean what they did is okay. It means that you're giving it up to God. That you're letting God be the judge and letting God bring justice instead of clinging to it for yourself. That you're choosing to say, God, you're going to turn this into something good. I'm going to have faith and trust in you. See, when we cling to our past nightmares and we hold on to it, we will only harm, uh, harm ourselves further. As Marianne Williamson has famously said, it's up on the screen, unforgiveness is like drinking poison yourself and waiting for the other person to die. Proverbs 20, verse 22, it's up on the screen, says this, don't ever say, I'll get you for that. Wait for God, he'll settle the score. And then Jesus offered this way, Matthew 6. In prayer, there is a connection between what God does and what you do. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. Let me explain that in a second. If you refuse to do your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. See, forgiveness is for our benefit. It's for the benefit of the person that you are forgiving. As my mentor said 30 years ago, if we can't forgive, God can't do everything. God wants to do in your heart and your life until you've forgiven. It's always about allowing us to put a burden down and simply walking away from it and being free. God's big dream for each of us is to love God and love people. Forgiveness through Jesus leads to forgiving those who have brought nightmares into our life. And in the midst of all these dreams, God has this greater dream for you and for me, for each of us to love God and love people, that God's big dream for your heart is to be free and to liberate your soul. And that freedom begins with forgiveness. And before God can do anything in our lives, anything greater than what he's already done, we have to let those things go. Is the band coming up? If the band comes up, let me wrap this up. Yeah, you guys come up. I'm going to work my way down the steps. And so we sang a couple songs about chains, and if I had thought this through and had looked at the lyrics to those songs, I would have included that in the message. 
But it seems to me that as we experience these things in life, these nightmares that have taken place, it's really about chains. It's about chains that are wrapped around us that we won't let go of. And we have no idea that those things we're holding on to are actually holding us. And I believe that's God's heart. That God's heart is for us to be free. To free of all those things. To say, this is what happened. And you meant it for evil. And yet God is using it for good. Amen.